Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Bidet. Hi, I'm Allie. I am Boomer. And we are recording in three separate locations across the United States. We are gathering on the internet to talk about movies once again. I am delighted to report that an old friend reached out on Instagram to recommend a movie to us. <gasps> an old roommate of mine. I don't know that he listens to this podcast, so I'm not sure if this was just an unsolicited movie recommendation that had nothing to do with our constant calls for people to email us uh, recommendations for things to cover on the podcast and blog. But I'm going to take it. He suggested that I finally watch Akira, oh, which seems like something I should yes. have done on my own a long time ago. Oh, yeah, yes. that's great. It's so good. And I know we talked a little bit, the three of us, about maybe covering more anime uh, because I feel like I'm missing a lot of like building blocks of that medium. Like, really basic shit. You know, I just watched Evangelion and Cowboy Bebop for the first time in the past couple of years. Right. Which I, think, I feel like Akira is the next logical step in yeah. that group. See, I would say, like, Sailor Moon, but we can't cover that on the podcast. You know, that is the one thing I have seen a lot of. Oh, good. <laughs> Tons of Sailor Moon over, over my lifetime. Oh, perfect. And it's great. It's one of the most uh, influential shows of all time, Sailor Moon. I, I believe that. I have friends that have been trying to get a Sailor Moon podcast off the ground. When that is official, I'll let everybody know. Um, and I might even be on that for a couple episodes. So if you want to hear more of me rambling, but about Sailor Moon. Are you watching the new stuff they're putting out? Because I know they had a new like feature-length movie on Netflix this year, but I have no idea if it's any good. I have not. Um, I've been working through the old show with my niece. So we're a little bit behind, but we're still, we're in a good season. We're in season three two or three anyway it's the season where it's really gay because we get sailor uranus and neptune so it's basically the best (laughs) so i guess i i i'm gonna talk about what i'm watching now and nobody asked but it's okay i'm gonna talk anyway hey Allie, what you been watching (laughs) (laughs) thank you for asking i have seen recently possessor for the first time oh nice i really really enjoyed it i thought it was great even though i also was like this is a messed up movie i feel like there's like a whole thesis paper you could write there about the weird gender stuff going on i love it oh that's one of the best sex scenes uh yes like recall in recent memory yes so weird it's so weird and so good there's a lot of good good weird gender stuff going on a lot of gnarly kills a lot of just Body dysmorphia horror. Yeah, it's great. That was on our uh, top 10 films of the year list as well last year, along with Baccarat, previously discussed. So that makes sense. It definitely deserves to be up there. It would have been on my list for last year, um, along with Baccarat and The Wolf House, but that's also uh, Criterion just put up their art house animation collection, The Wolf House, and is in it, but I took advantage of it to watch Millennium Actress for the first time, and I loved it, and it made me cry, and it gave me a lot of feelings. There's a lot about, you know, memory and, like, the pursuit of a dream, even if the goal isn't necessarily, like, what you want, but, like, it's the journey, which, you know, is kind of, like, sappy, but, yeah, I'm a big sap, so it got me. But there's, it's also kind of just a love letter to, like, Japanese cinema in general. So there's a lot of really great references to Kurosawa movies and Ozu movies. 
it's very good and I highly, highly recommend it. I only saw that one time and it was in the theater. Oh, that was probably amazing. Uh, yeah, it was really beautiful. Actually, like Satoshi Khan is one of the few anime things that I have seen like a lot of. Yeah, he is a genius for real. Oh yeah. Paprika, personal favorite of mine. I loved Perfect Blue. I still haven't seen Perfect Blue, so I only saw that one time in the theater as well. I, I guess Fathom Events has been doing these like recent like theatrical runs for his stuff oh, nice. before they get these like Blu-ray restorations. Yeah, I'm trying to remember Millennium Actress. Does that have like a sort of cinema through time feel? Yes. Like you like watch her over the decades. Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. Is it's very cinema through time, and also like a view of Japanese history that's like it doesn't erase any of the negative aspects while also not directly showing a lot of the horrible violence and like colonialism that happened. Um, so I really, really enjoyed that because like, you know, so rarely is the negative Japanese history, like even acknowledged. And then, you know, we have a main character who is super uncomfortable with her own country's actions. And I just really loved it. Cause you know, big same, but yeah, so I saw those two, and then I returned to the theater for the first time in a year and a half, and I saw The Green Knight, and oh, yeah. I really, really liked it. I thought it was a great coming back to theaters movie, especially because like it's a visual feast, and it was just really nice to see it on a bigger screen. That I know if I had watched it at home, I wouldn't have had the same feeling. I mean, it's still a beautiful movie, regardless. But also, you know, I tried to describe this, but so far, nobody's really gotten what I'm talking about. But it had a lot of, like, imposter syndrome, like, quarter-life crisis vibes to me, (laughs) which was really great. Just the idea of feeling like you have to constantly prove yourself and that you're not what everybody expects you to be and just having like a crisis being like I haven't done anything with myself and it just made me really glad that I'm over with that point in my life (laughs) it felt a lot like that to me um and I like the interpretation of the story the poem a lot of movies will go for the direct adaptation but you know this one definitely has its own spin and its own themes going on through the story that I really, really enjoyed. And on that note, Boomer, you also saw it. I also went into the theater and I saw it. And I saw your post on Facebook after you saw it about the quarter-life crisis uh, themes that you were getting from it. And I was looking forward to hearing what that meant to you. Because to me, I didn't necessarily see that as the same theme. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't perceive Gawain or Gawain so much as having like a quarter life crisis, so much as being like kind of a child of luxury. Oh who, yeah, that too. But <laughs> uh, has kind of careless disregard for the plight of the common man completely, and even whenever Arthur is asking him to sit by him, it's like you know, say, uh, tell me a story about yourself so that I may know you better. Gawain doesn't even really. He seems slightly embarrassed that he doesn't really have a story to tell in comparison to like these knights and i guess for me that was a part of it too with the with the circle of knights and and arthur himself 
because it did sort of seem like more of a collapse of the Republic kind of story. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's just because of the times that we're living in, but that we basically are aware that there was some former glory, but now Arthur himself is old, decrepit. Uh, he barely gets out of bed sometimes. Like in the flash yeah. forward, he knights go on, <laughs> Gowan from his bed, right? It's like he barely yeah. can move. And they're elderly. And even the knights of the round table seem hesitant to challenge the green knight when he shows up. Everybody seems to just be kind of comfortably settling into the rest before the final rest. And he, as someone who sort of grew up in this lap of luxury as the king's nephew, has just been able to go to the brothels and kind of waste his life. And it sort of doesn't matter whether he completes his quest or not, because we, as members of the audience, know that the time of Camelot is coming to an end. Like, that's sort of just the nature of the story of Camelot, is that it starts to fall apart. And when Arthur is gone, this, you know, conceptually pro-Britain, like, story starts to just completely fall apart. Because without the linchpin, which is the cornerstone, which is King Arthur, it, it cannot exist beyond into, you know, it's a, it's this time of prosperity and, and grace and national pride. And, and then Arthur is the, the linchpin of it. And when he, he's taken out, that keystone just kind of collapses. So we as the audience know that the success or failure of Gowan's mission is irrelevant, even in the flash forward when we learn, you know, about, or we see a possible, I guess. Yeah, I, I was going to say a possible future. I don't want to spoil too much, so I, I guess yeah. I won't get too into it. But it seems that there's an inevitability to the fall of this nation. Uh, states such as it is and so that's what i kind of see in it and it's that it is kind of a story about uh humility but also futility and the irrelevance of all of us as tiny parts in like a larger societal collapse uh as well as like yeah the fact that maybe that's okay which also was kind of like quarter life crisis vibes for me yeah we're all futile but resistance is futile. Uh, resistance is ding, futile. Ding, ding. <laughs> um, I went, I went in pr- pretty in depth. I don't want to repeat everything that uh, I wrote in my review that went up a couple of days ago. I will link that in the show notes. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I was looking forward to your take on it, and I'm glad uh, that you enjoyed it as much as you did, and that you got to see it in the theater, which is nice. Yeah. It was my second journey to the theater, and. We may be headed towards another lockdown because our government is incompetent. So who knows if that might be the last movie I see in theaters again for a while. But I also saw another movie with Green in the title. It came out a couple of years ago. It's currently streaming on Hulu. Greener Grass. Oh, that's a really fun one. I knew that you would be pleased uh, whenever I brought it up um, because I... It kind of seemed like so odd and unknown. I I guess I must have missed your review when you posted it when it was at the New Orleans Film Festival. But I just watched it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't have you seen it, Allie? I have not. Oh, it's great. It's like if you were to take Strangers with Candy and David Lynch and Desperate Housewives and like a Barbie dollhouse and throw all of those things into a blender. 
It's a very strange, surreal, suburban nightmare where everything is just slightly uncanny and bizarre, including like people giving their babies away. And I guess that there is like a commentary in it about the desperation of keeping up with the Joneses. The suburban dad who's so obsessed with his pool water being so sparkling oh, clean he that he bottles it and carries it. around to drink it. Uh, <laughs> oh my it's God. oxygenated. <laughs> Sounds it great. It was a delight. Everybody has braces, even though they have perfect teeth. There's a woman who has a child that's in the same class as the main character's children, who's kind of a tertiary character herself. And she's always dressed like she's going to a tennis match or some other like social event that that's just the way that she dresses everyone's color-coded in their dress where like couples will wear these very eastery pinks and blues and greens they're these bright very um springtime colors and there's just so much detail in every frame that I really love. I think they filmed it in a um, real suburban community where everyone travels around by golf cart. Is that so true? that they just have like <gasps> hundreds of golf carts around? Oh and that's my why everyone gosh. does that in the film. It's so weird. I wow. thought that that was just like a touch. I thought that that was like nope. a director's touch, but that place exists. <laughs> oh, that's my gosh, horrifying. But the golf carts themselves have little like '90s floral valence fringe around the edges of them and like little throw pillows on the back benches where you know people would be riding in the back seat but it's a golf cart it's so strange Allie at one point one of the characters like picks up a soccer ball and she puts it under her shirt and everybody's like oh my god you're pregnant yes and they go through like a whole song and dance with like a baby shower (laughs) and then a birth And then photos with the baby and like attempts to name the baby something like unconventional, but not too unconventional. They land on Twilson, (laughs) by the way. Um, It's on Hulu. I really recommend it. I, I had a great time watching it. It's definitely not going to be for everyone, but if you're a Swamp Flicks participant or listener, it's probably right up your alley. Um, if you like all the things that we like and you bother listening to this, big recommend from me. I also watched the new Italian horror film, A Classic Horror Story, that's on Netflix. The review of that one just went up this week, too, as well. I remember, Brandon, you were saying that you had heard stuff about it and that uh, you wanted to, you were looking forward to my thoughts. So, what had you heard before? before you got my copy just the early still images and like trailer excitement that comes with every horror movie right and i feel like i followed too many horror bloggers that like specifically just covered that genre so that every new property that comes out there's just like so much buzz that i literally can't tell what's genuinely worth getting excited about and what's not but you know the sort of like midsummer mockbuster vibes from this like were both drawing me in and making me cautious at the same time. <laughs> like, I wasn't sure if this was worth the, like, 100 minutes or whatever. But it, it is right there on Netflix, so I probably should have just given it a shot. It's pretty fun. And considering that, like, you know, Italy used to, like, rule the horror world, uh, and now not so much, and that that's actually kind of part of the narrative, you know, the fact that there is no classic horror story coming out of Italy the way that it used to in the 60s and 70s and 80s. 
and up through uh, maybe the early 2000s. I'd say probably the last great Jalo or the last good Jalo was um, Non Hosono or The Sleepless, which was Argento's last good film as well. And the fact that it doesn't ever mention any of the classic Italian horror directors, but it does reference American pop culture is a really interesting thing. Uh, my one problem with it is that I am pretty sick to death of like narratives in which uh, someone is considering doing taking a major life action and then changes their mind because of you know a horror situation that they're in as it plays out in this movie. I don't want to give it too much away, but there's like a clear decision that a character who has survived makes implicitly that is different from where they were emotionally and decisively at the beginning of the film. And it's one that I think is narratively irresponsible. Um, and I won't, again, I don't want to spoil anything more than that, but if you watch it, you'll see what I mean. Um, but I loved it. I loved the color of it. I liked the visuals of it. I liked the characters were very well, very well imagined, very well thought out. And again, without spoiling too much, it does that thing I like. You know that thing I like that you and I are just <laughs> disagreement about? Yes. It does that. And I like it. Um, I was very pleased with where it went. I'm as lost as anybody else listening It's here. the same Don't argument worry. we have every time we talk about a horror film. So uh, just listen to past episodes for clues. Yeah. Again, <laughs> to say more than that would spoil it. It would be like, you know, uh, if it, it, it's one of those things where just mentioning it is kind of a walking spoiler. It's like, you know, calling something, oh, it's like Fight Club. Like that kind of gives it away exactly what kind of narrative it's going to be, right? Um, that's not what's happening with a classic horror story, but uh, saying what it is, the thing that I like that it does, <laughs> that it does, would uh, give too much away. Uh, and then finally, I watched the new James Gunn film, The Suicide Squad, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, the first one I didn't care for. In general, the DC movies of late, there's been, I don't know, only one or two that I thought were uh, decent. But this one I thoroughly enjoy. And it's weird because it kind of let, it's kind of like DC let James Gunn go very James Gunn in a way that obviously he couldn't when he was making like Guardians of the Galaxy, which has some of his signature comedy, but not necessarily some of his signature disgustingness. Yeah, this has more trauma DNA running through it than Guardians does. You saw it, I know. And it was, I was pleased by how violent and gory and also just like gross it is so like you know anyone who's seen the trailer knows that like eventually starro the conqueror shows up in this movie which is a classic classic dc villain which is a giant starfish from space that assimilates people into its like larger sort of consciousness um and resistance is futile there as well but <laughs> normally when you see starro on the page even animated like the best star story in my opinion is the one from batman the brave and the bold i will uh, take no further questions after that but like <laughs> when starro is drawn it's a starfish it's kind of cute but <laughs> in live action and as big as a building it's so gross 
it's so disgusting. It's like nauseating to look at just all of its little nodules and nodes and tentacles and like, you know, starfish can turn themselves inside out. That's gross. The sea is disgusting. And so is everything in it. Yeah. Starfish kind of freaked me out. They're so unlike us <laughs> that they're incomprehensible and also gross. But I, I thought about doing a, a, a review of it, but then I figured, Brandon, it kind of fell under wrestling cinema. So I figured <laughs> that you would probably want to write it up because it has uh, John Cena in it. Before I completely hand the baton off, I will say, loved King Shark, loved Harley in this one. I liked the unexpected places that the story went. I liked how mostly down-to-earth it is. I liked how critical it was of American intervention uh, in Banana Republics. Yeah, I, I found it uh, actually very good. Uh, Brandon, what did you think? Um, I thought when I was going to write about it that I was going to talk about how much I love John Cena in the movie because he is so funny. And most of the things I like very clearly remember are his one-liners. He does a great parody of like the inherent fascism of superheroes in this that I'm not sick of yet because I haven't watched The Boys, which I feel like is that exact <laughs> line of humor. <laughs> but uh, to me, it felt fresh. And he has given me that like Arnold Schwarzenegger, self-aware, but still somehow hilarious delivery. Like There's just something really about uh, his timing and his... like image subversion that I find is so funny, especially in this. Anytime he's in an R-rated comedy is when I'm like, he's like completely turned around in my brain. Cause I, I used to think he was like the worst thing about wrestling. And now I think he's like one of the greatest living entertainers <laughs> that we have. Um, and like, I'm totally stoked to watch him at SummerSlam this month. It's like the, the one big wrestling thing on the horizon that I'm like actually excited about. But when I actually sat down to write about it, the thing that was like really sticking with me was the fact that James Gunn like revived the Scorsese theme park discourse to defend this film in particular. Oh, right. I did want to talk about that. Oh, God. Okay, go on. Sorry. What I find hilarious about that is because that is exactly how I would describe this movie. I had a really fun ride. I had a lot of laughs. There were a lot of like gaudy splat stick gore gags that like made me real smile and you know, fun hanging out with my buddies. Like all these characters were like really funny pieces of shit. And then, you know, when it was over, all the details of what I just enjoyed, like evaporated from my brain. Like nothing about this really sticks to my brain cells at all. Whereas I enjoyed the first suicide squad more than most people seem to. And Honestly, I think it's a more interesting film, even if it's not as really? good of a film as this one. Really? There's just more to talk about. Like, mm. all you could really talk about in this movie is the characters are funny, which one is your favorite, and then it's kind of the conversation's kind of over. Whereas, like, the first Suicide Squad, there's so many things to, like, pick apart, especially with, like, the sort of behind-the-scenes shenanigans of, like, the movie being taken out of the director's hands and, um, I think, improved through studio meddling, which rarely ever happens. James Gunn got to make exactly the picture he wanted. It's very much like a James Gunn superhero movie, uh, and it's, you know, gory, good time, but there's really nothing else. It's junk food. Like, I, it just kind of was over when it was over. Would watch again, but won't think about it till that happens. I'm not going to say that this one doesn't have as much to discuss as the first one, because that's 
there's that's definitely true because the first one is like um, Battlefield Earth, right? Where <laughs> there are movies that I've seen in it that I loved and found touching, and that took me on an emotional journey that I can't that I could barely you know, tell you about at all other than some of the things that I really enjoyed or how they like briefly emotionally connected with me. But if you were to ask me about Battlefield Earth, I remember every moment of it with crystal clarity <laughs> because it's just, there's so, it's, it's such a bad movie. Everything is wrong with it. Every frame and it sticks with you, right? It's unforgettable. And I think that that's true about the first Suicide Squad is that it's unforgettable. Not good, but definitely like there's a lot to discuss there. It's infinitely unpackable. <laughs> it's a hypercube. It's of of things that um, <laughs> Pandora's boxes to then keep opening to give us. It's more like that embarrassing moment in your life that you just keep going back to. Yeah. God, I wish I had only one of those. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I th- I thought that movie was accidentally decent (laughs) and like the series of accidents that led to it being a hot topic costumed shoot 'em up with two compelling performances at the center of it which were margot robbie and will smith like against all odds the fact that i found that like to be a decent you know popcorn blockbuster is a lot more interesting than like this movie which is a perfectly functioning blockbuster that happens to like be have a little more of a grotesque edge to it than most of them because that's you know what the director brings to the table there's something about it that's just so like it's like candy that's really bad for you it's like uh oh yeah creepy crawlers that you make yourself uh Uh, as opposed to just like I don't know, I, I would I would compare the first one to like rotten Turkish delight. Like it's <laughs> it's it's palate, oh. it's tasteless. You would only be able to be tempted by it if you were living through a war. Whereas <laughs> this one, there's that there's like a, a solid ten second scene of like Idris Elba putting together like his stupid gun in the climax and he's not even like putting it together mechanically it's like a video game where he's just like pulling things off of his suit and just like tapping it onto the gun and then it grows into something bigger and more ridiculous and while i was watching that scene i was like i would hate this if it wasn't such like a a nerd's rope of a movie where it's just like everything is candy everything rots your brain None of it has any nutritional value, but damn, is it fun. Damn, is it like, <laughs> you know, crunchy. Because that scene could very easily have been like something out of the 2005 Doom movie, right? Uh, just like a video game montage, lock and load, extravagant BFG montage. But it wasn't. It was just like, this is so dumb and I'm having such a good time. And I kind of don't want it to end. But yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's like conservation of screen time like this is a it's a pretty long movie for a super too long movie. exhausting you think so oh god no comedy should be over two hours long Fair <laughs> gotta have that tight 90 this movie did not feel its length to me personally but uh, even this was a movie i watched alone cat was out of town this weekend i was repainting while she was gone this was like the one time I stopped, like whenever it was like, okay, it's two hours until I can do another coat. And I sit down and watch the new Suicide Squad. And it 
it didn't feel its length to me at all. The moment it was over, I was like, God, that was two hours. I just like flew by. I don't know. I guess we're just going to have to disagree on it. But I really enjoyed it personally. Me too. And then I forgot everything about it. (laughs) (laughs) What else have you been watching? I do have two more films that are like sci-fi and violent. I think a little more high reaching in their ideas. And I'm only grouping them because there was like one detail about the two of them that they shared. That was very odd to me. One of them works really well, and the other one kind of works. <laughs> Almost in a Suicide Squad type way. But the first one where, like, you know, it's kind of a mess, but it, it kind of holds together as, like, a fascinating object. That one is this movie called Sound of Violence, which came out this year. And this premise is insane. Uh, it's a little girl watches her, like, family get murdered by her, like, PTSD just home from the Iraq War father. Um, and you know, that experience of watching that violence triggers this like synesthesia in her, like the sound of her like mother and brother being killed causes these like flashes of like clouds of color and like this like cosmic kind of color out of space, like CGI swirling in her head. And then we cut to like modern day, 20 years later. And, um, she is a experimental musician who is trying to trigger that same synesthesia response in herself by eventually becoming a serial killer. <laughs> and uh, she creates all these like really complex musical contraptions that um, she can play like a keyboard, but they're really torture devices that like the sounds of like excruciating violence in her victims triggers that same synesthesia in her head. And we see those swirls of color again. And, you know, Eventually, her violence gets out of hand, and she gets tracked down by a police officer. I, I could keep going on about what happens in this movie, because there's just like way too much going on. That high concept is hard to grasp. Like, the fact that she's, like, seeing those colors because of those sounds. And the movie kind of, like, chickens out on you getting it by, like, having her explain in voiceover multiple times what synesthesia is, and, like how she got there and like how she processes trauma. It's all very direct. And she's also in love with her roommate who like is oblivious to her romantic pinings. And also we follow this cop that's like on her trail. It's like way too much stuff. Um, And none of it is, is, is as interesting as these torture musical device contraptions she makes as this like experimental musician. Um, And that's the stuff that like really like sticks with you. So like, kind of alternates between this like high concept sci-fi horror movie and then also this like cw procedural drama um that's like not as interesting it's a weird movie that i don't know is actually good but it's very interesting i don't know if any of that sounds like something that would be interesting to you maybe you'd like it more than i did okay i liked it okay but i also watched this movie called in the earth which is the new film from ben wheatley This one is on Canopy right now, so you can watch it free through the library. It is a sort of COVID-era sci-fi horror. There's this, like, global virus that everyone has to, like, get routinely checked and quarantined for to not spread to each other. But it's not directly referencing COVID. It's, It's trying to not play that as on the nose as it could. And a lot of the way it does that is it sets most of its action in the woods. This is a very relevant to the uh, thing Boomer was (laughs) vaguely referencing earlier, where, like, there are two people that are 
kind of the villains in this movie. And one is trying to negotiate with nature by returning to these mystic rituals, these like religious rituals where he like prays to this like elder god of the woods and um, kills and sacrifices people as a sort of like mythical offering to this god. And he's completely insane. But then also there's this mad scientist in the forest who um, is communicating with nature through science. And uh, her way of doing this is to record the sounds of trees, combining that with this like psychedelic strobe light effect and running the sounds of that, this experiment through synthesizers and playing them back on a keyboard to the trees to sort of negotiate with the same sort of like elder <laughs> god, but through a like science experiment, mad scientist, musician kind of way. Well, and she's I'm also a violent now. maniac. This sounds like right up my alley. It's yeah. wild. And all of this like woodland area is on top of this interconnected system of mushroom spores. So once these two outsiders enter this arena with these two competing science versus relig- uh, like religious mysticism villains, all of the like details of what's happening is very confused because the mushroom spores are making them trip balls the entire time. So like your favorite X-Files episode, Yes, right? very much like my favorite X-Files episode. <laughs> I was thinking of that as well. And yeah, it, it's just a like feverish descent into madness, like science versus religion thing and then like maybe those two things are more connected than they first appear there's a lot of gore to sort of like match this like psychedelic sci-fi on top of that there's this this axe-wielding maniac that's like trying to chop people down as well so it's like uh metaphysical and physical at the same time i don't know it's just a really wild movie i'm excited about it you had me at like playing synthesizers to trees of trees yeah, and that's like the connection to Sound of Violence, like just that weird like turning experimental music into a violent device. I, I found that like an interesting connection between those two new movies. Um, in, in Sound of Violence, you get to hear a very beautiful rendition of Amazing Grace on a theremin, which is something I've never seen. Ooh. <laughs> Our inspiration, strangely enough, were not the greats of the cinema. Yes, we loved the movies by, uh, I don't know, John Ford, Charlie Chaplin, uh, René Claire, Marcel Carnet, you know, you name them all. No, our inspiration was a reaction to the stupidity of the films created by this period of so-called social, socialist realism which was so, everything was so fake, so untrue, so propaganda-oriented, that we just wanted to bring, you know, our truth, subjective truth, and objective truth, you know, real people, real faces on the screen. Picture it. Prague. Czech Republic. 1968. Occupied by the Soviet Union. Um, There are protests all around the country. What is happening known as the uh, Frog Spring or, you know, the Velvet Revolution is currently going on. This is all backdrop for this movie. And usually I would say, oh, history and movies, like, that's only something I care about as, like, 
a weird snob, but when it comes to movements like the Czech New Wave, it's pretty important just culturally because all of these movies during the Prague Spring, 1968 essentially, all of these Czech movies, weirdo stuff from 1968 is all a reaction and part of this movement. So most of them got banned, most of them got buried, or didn't get released until the 2000s, as in the case of Vera Hitolova and her movie Daisies. It was all a form of protest. And so that is our background here for Loves of Leblon by Milos Forman, who, after being a Czech director in the you know, Czech New Wave, went on to be a really well-known mainstream director doing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus, both I love, they're great. Yeah, so way before that, he made Loves of a Blonde, which is a movie about a young woman who lives in, well, they call it a hostel, but basically a dormitory for girls who work at a shoe factory in this small town in the Czech Republic. And... There's the very, like, Soviet-esque aspect of their movements and how they use their lives are controlled. The fact that they need more workers at this plant is, like, a huge deal here because they don't want to let any of these young young women leave. So they're trying to find ways to bring men in to get them married. Um, So that's a background aspect for this movie. They outnumber men 16 to 1. Yeah. And then on top of all of this cultural background, it's just a story of a young woman trying to navigate being in love and being out of love and being heartbroken and just having to, at the end, just go back to her job. So yeah, I feel like that's the summation and the cultural background. Um, Does anybody want to do some thoughts? I'm a little surprised by this movie because you you pitched it as a Czech New Wave film, and I know of the Czech New Wave mostly as like this aggressively surreal, high key political movement. Like I'm I'm thinking of you know Daisies, which you already mentioned, or um, yeah, mm-hmm. Valerie and her Week of Wonders, or like all those Jan Smekmeyer yep. shorts. Like those movies are fucking nightmarish, like surrealism. And yes, like, <laughs> aggressively styled. This is not like that at all. Yeah, it's no wonder that, you know, he went on to make more mainstream movies, because I feel like this is the most accessible of the Czech New Wave, but it's still, it's still part of it. You know, it's still blatantly, like, political. It's just, doesn't have the same amount of surrealism. I honestly think this might be more representative of the Czech New Wave in general. It's just like I've been drawn more to like the uh, you gotta see this weird ass movie like that's the stuff that like oh yeah you know probably self selected yeah it's it's interesting because there are so many different sides of it and then I would say like in the middle you've got things like closely watched trains that kind of mix the surrealism with like the day to day mundanity and is very funny so maybe we'll have to watch that one eventually unless y'all have already covered that one I no we remember. we never touched that one. This felt to me like a French New Wave movie that just happened to like be set in like a Czech shoe factory. Like it has a lot of that same oh, like yeah. Yeah, posturing, I can see that. cool. Uh, it's like very like youth culture focused. The mm-hmm. older people are mostly like jokes. Like the uh, especially the ending sequence where they're trapped in this apartment with 
a mother and father figure and they're just like oh pure comedy um, or like the uh, older military men who are hitting on these young women are so oblivious about it. They're kind of just like pathetic losers. I hated them. <laughs> I think you're supposed to. Yeah, you are. You're definitely supposed to like that whole kerfuffle with them. I, I, I could not time. believe they just recalled like... that bottle. I was like, for shame oh, God, painful. You. Oh, yeah. Especially because, like, I don't know if I'm just, like, you know, if there's, like, a weird blindness that's happening, but I couldn't, I didn't see a disparity in attractiveness between the women they wanted to woo and the women that were interested in them. That's something I kind of, like, understand as a Czech New Wave thing. Like, okay, the whole thing that they're supposedly rejecting in this like film movement is the social realist propaganda of the like filmmaking that came before them. So like in those movies, they're very straightforward, just observational films that are supposed to reinforce how great life is in Czechoslovakia. And what's weird about this is like, if it's a rejection of that, it's not in the, you know, Svankmeyer way where like, it's so far from realism that it's an obvious rejection of it because it's still showing real people and like real faces no one in this movie is like movie star beautiful they're just like sort of ordinary people it's a lot of amateur actors so so i guess the sort of rejection there is just the fact that it has a plot and it has so many like stylistic flourishes and it's funny also i thought the women that that originally got the bottle of wine they looked older to me Mm, that makes sense they looked older to me, so I thought it was more of, like, these old guys going after these, like, 19-year-old girls. Or at least that's what it seemed like to me. So it's it would have been like, more of a appropriate are, for know, them to, like, hit on the first table. Yeah, the age-appropriate women, and that's why the waiter delivered the wine to that table in the first place, uh, I thought. Uh, I thought that was that whole gotcha. thing. Gotcha. Okay, I'm with it. I'm hip. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I didn't think they were any less pretty, so I get that. I'm just saying, I think the girls were younger and they're all kind of pathetically hiding their wedding rings and you know oh my god <laughs> uh trying to make themselves appear slimmer and younger than they are and it's just really pathetic like midlife crisis stuff that sequence in particular stands out as like the centerpiece of the movie maybe with the scene where the young musician is struggling with the blind with the blind loved it Oh my gosh, yes. And then the the <laughs> final part where the mom is just talking everyone's heads off where they're trying to go to sleep about how this young musician is like ruining the family name. Because it is just like straight up traditional comedy sequences sort of interrupting that like observational factory life documentation. There's just like something I, I did not expect from this movement of films uh, was just to watch a like mm-hmm. sort of French New Wave style comedy set in Czechoslovakia. That is not what I thought I was in for. And it was good for what it was. I went in pretty blind. I didn't mis- make any assumptions based on where this was filmed or what city it was, uh, or what nation it was filmed in. Like, I was just like, okay, it's a movie. And when they started talking, I was like, huh, I wonder what language this is. Like, it was just, <laughs> it all kind of floated past me in the stream just a little bit. And then I and then I kind of hopped on because I I watched... I guessed like a solid first 20 minutes of it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty somber. 
And then I had to like hop off because I was like watching it on my, my lunch break at work. And then I was kind of idly looking at information about it while, um, you know, waiting to get off of work and finish it. And I was shocked because it was like the first thing on Wikipedia is that it says, oh, it's an ensemble comedy. And I was like, oh. Oh, I didn't realize that. And I think maybe that's a problem for me is that like sometimes I just don't realize if something's supposed to be a comedy if it's set somewhere the Soviets were. I don't. Yeah, I think somewhere the Soviets were and somewhere where the environment is so yeah. drab. Yeah. You don't really expect for it to be a comedy. You know, but... when she like leaves that tie for her like boyfriend and then he never shows up. I thought that that was very sad. I didn't think that that was funny at all. I think um, it's sad too. Okay. I just love the line about like, you're not allowed to be festooning trees. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. That okay. line got me. You're right. It is funny, but I didn't so realize it's, it. It's dry, but <laughs> yeah. Until uh, until upon reflection, but maybe that's uh, that's my failing, not the films. The setting is like sad and dark. And that never changes, but the there's like a lot of humor that comes out of that tension, especially the scene where like they're supposed to have sex and he's struggling with the blinds. Like that's straight up like a Marx Brothers physical comedy gag. Yeah, and by that point, I was I, I had come to realize, oh, you're right, this is a comedy. This is funny. I mean, this is like almost broad physical humor. But yes, and I think maybe we should describe that. Uh scene with the the bottles where they're sending the bottles to the women a little better because we're just jumping into like our reaction <laughs> yeah. to it but that scene is very funny yeah. and it's like construction it's so funny yeah these three older like reserve sh- soldiers who've been sent to the town to address the lack of men <laughs> there's a big party in their honor and they see our like three main girls you know, like I said, these 19-year-olds, like, disinterested, like, youth. And they're sitting next to another table of three more age-appropriate women. And these guys are, of course, looking at the, the probably literally teenagers. And they order a bottle of wine for the younger girls. And the waiter mistakenly brings the wine and the glasses to the older women. And then eventually, like they get the waiter to move the wine and the glasses back to the younger women. Oh, it's so awkward. So awkward and also just like, these men are It leaves one of the women (laughs) in tears at the end of the evening. It's heartbreaking. Yes. That's a uh, sequence too where like, there are a lot of laughs, but it does end with a like sad, desperate end of the night like trying to manipulate someone into having sex with you and it gets skeezy again. Mm-hmm. And there's like two hookups that happen as a result. One's very sweet and one's just fucking sad. <laughs> it's like doing both at the same time. Yeah. It's funny uh, rewatching that scene and being much older than I saw this film the first time. I'm just like, oh man, I remember being a young woman and guys like this. Like, Milo, she got it. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot funnier, uh, this watch around. And then um, you were talking about them hiding their wedding rings desperately, but one man actually <laughs> loses it, his wedding ring, through the dancing crowd, and it goes under the table of women that they have just snubbed. That's one of the more lyrical 
images too, much like yeah. the tie around the the necktie around the tree. We like have this sort of like yes. smooth. I want to call it a tracking shot of the wedding ring just gliding between dancers' legs. Yeah. back to that table. It's a it's really fun, inventive filmmaking, and then it ends in like a visual gag where he's like crawling under the table, and it looks like he's like peeking up their skirts like a pervert. Yeah. You know, the movie does that really well at the end, too, where um, this factory girl has gone back to this one-night stand's home, sort of, like, taking him on his word that he'd, like, like to see her again. And that desperation and that loneliness is, like, really sad. But then his mother overpowers the entire encounter, where she just will not stop berating him for fucking up so spectacularly. And that's so funny, but... It cuts to her listening to her mom talking about what an inconvenience she is from the other side of the yeah. door. So it cuts back to, like, the sadness again. I don't know. It, it always does both at the same time. I just felt, I felt so sad for everyone. I'm heartbroken, and your mother is the worst. She's the worst in, like, a sitcom mom kind of way. Yes. The mother-in-law across the street who can't stop meddling in your stuff is, like, the archetype she's playing. Mm-hmm. I know that this is, may seem slightly off topic, but I don't know if anybody else is watching uh, the AMC program. Kevin can fuck himself. No, no, I'm uh, I'm spending all my sitcom time watching seasons and seasons of the nanny in a uh, rapid succession. So uh, I've not made time for that one yet. It's not really a sitcom, right? It's a subversion of it. Yeah, it's Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek. And it's basically a movie about, or a movie, it's a television series about what the inner life of a woman who is married to a typical sitcom husband would be like. Harrowing, as it turns out, but hilarious. And this was, this reminded me of of that. It's kind of doing that almost as like a prototype, like back in the day, where you do have this like comical scene where the mother and father are in the bed with the son and he stinks and everybody's fighting over the covers and ha 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 but also you know you do cut to the outside of the store and you're seeing the internal life of this woman who all she really wants is to escape from the dreary life of being like a factory woman living in a town where women outnumber men 16 to 1 and you know she does take this like the level of self deception that she has created for herself where it's not just that she's young and naive you have to actually like be practicing a somewhat conscious level of self deception in order to believe that a one night stand who's like yeah maybe we'll see each other again you know intends for you to come and find him in prague like unannounced yeah yeah and we see that self-deception in the opening and closing scenes as well where she's sort of bragging about how wonderful it went you know she knows that that's not what happened but she's like sort of like self-mythologizing her oh, yeah his mother romantic was so love nice. life yeah and his dad was wonderful <laughs> that's not the movie i watched and you know her yeah. wonderful boyfriend on the little dirtbag motorcycle that oh she God. describes in the first scene is not the guy we meet halfway into the movie who's like an asshole and a brute. Yeah, so what's really uh, interesting is like after watching this movie, I found an interview with um, the lead actress. And apparently Milos Forman is her brother-in-law. And 
she would just like confide in him. And so like some of these stories like actually happened to her, <laughs> which is sort of more depressing. Uh, like the boyfriend with the ring thing, apparently like she, a guy gave her a ring and then demanded oh. for it to be given back. Uh, so it's just like, oh man, like not only is this movie just like oddly humorous and also depressing, like, your life is too. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. But that scene where he's like so scary, busting into that girl's dormitory. Yeah. It starts with him negotiating at the window for her to come outside. And like every time he calls oh, for yeah. her, a new girl comes out and she's like, oh, she's busy or something. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That's very funny. Spe- speaking of sitcoms, yeah. I-, I-, I do want to mention that um, Czech TV show they show a significant chunk of about oh like, like mannequins that come to life. Oh, yeah! I want to know what that was about. I want to watch a whole episode of that. I was thinking that exact same thing. I was like, I can't decide if I'm horrified or intrigued, and maybe both. <laughs> the Criterion Channel had a few, you know, extras, you know, bonus features on the service, which is great. You know, most streaming services don't bother with that. But um, I would have rathered a full episode of that mannequin sitcom <laughs> than... Uh, the 15-minute Milos <laughs> interview they had instead. Yeah, that would have been been so good. Yeah, I when I originally saw this movie, I really, you know, I was 19, about to turn 20. I was, like, the perfect age to watch this movie and be like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it, you know, it's very, um, very relatable from, like, living as a young lady in that way. And then... Like you said, it's politically like interesting because it is still a reaction to all of that while being more of like a straightforward, less surreal, you know, there's the the comedy gags, but it's definitely not. Yeah, you're still getting authentic glimpses of like rural factory life mixed in there as well. Yes, exactly. You know, it is political, if nothing else, just in the fact that it's about a young woman's sex life outside of marriage. And it's not moralistic yes. about that in any way. It's just sort of matter of fact, you know, people have sex. It's moralistic, but in a joking way. Like when the, oh the head lady at the dormitory is just like, everyone needs to respect themselves more. It's just like, and you could see like all of the girls like trying yeah, not to Yeah, she is laugh. the butt of the joke like... in that scene. <laughs> just like the mom like flipping out about what the neighbors might think at the end is the, mm-hmm. the butt of the joke that scene where everyone votes to be like yeah let's get our purity rings uh, except for our lead Andela. uh and she also abstains and then they're like they single her out and they're like does anybody also want to vote that they're abstaining and she's just like so like <laughs> embarrassed and that immediately prompts her to be like fuck this place i'm gonna go find my piano playing boyfriend i i think that maybe for me there's something about like slavic languages where i don't intuit uh sarcasm from them because i feel like this happens every time we watch like a movie <laughs> like that that was made under the thumb of the soviets and it's not like more expressive because this is a very naturalistic way of acting it's not like kind of broader the way that you like would would if you were communicating larger emotions because a lot of these emotions are are small or if not small at least understated and that's kind of the point where i was like reading the synopsis again in preparation for this 
and there is the manager of the shoe factory who is the one who tells the military men like come on you, you've got to send us some some soldiers if we, we, you've got to send somebody to come dance with these girls because they're saying that they're going to quit every month but they they keep not quitting because the the men leave them because men are horrible and then he's like walking around the big dance party where they're welcoming these reservists into town and the plot synopsis for the film describes him as having a smug smile and i didn't pick up on him being smug at all i thought he was just smiling i thought he was super pleasure. earnest yeah i thought he was very earnest as well i thought he was just genuinely excited about this thing that yeah he i guess he's proud together. of himself i guess i guess that counts as smug he was the only man in this movie who wasn't just horrible except for maybe the dad the dad at the end seemed more put upon than terrible but yeah he seemed to be genuinely i mean Yes, he is driven by like the need to keep production at the shoe factory up, but he also seemed to genuinely care about <laughs> the lives of these women in a way that nobody else really seemed to, which I found endearing at least. But I guess I do see the through line of like Angela just completely lives in her fantasies, and that is, I guess, what you would have to do if you were living under like soviet rule where like your your life is just completely comprised of like your fantasy uh idea of being anywhere but there yeah like everything is your factory job you go to work you come back you're still around your coworkers. you're stuck in this town and then you know there's also the aspect of like literally planning out and controlling the lives of young women like yeah this factory boss like slash mayor i guess like clearly wants to have their best interests in mind but like he doesn't take into account like what they would think with it yeah where was that vote yeah exactly it's just like there's a lot of like men deciding things and then we just basically get to see like the different paths of like you know womanhood in this era and place like you're either getting snubbed by jerk soldiers or you're a nagging sitcom wife put upon and unable to sleep and everybody's giving you a headache so you know in that way it's also pretty bleak but also yeah like you said it's it's political like the idea of a young woman's sex life being explored at all and then to view it in sort of liberatory like escapist way you know, I don't want to downplay either the fact that it does have a lot of strong, like, lyrical images. You know, I was kind of contrasting it with the mm-hmm. more out there Czech New Wave stuff, but, like, I don't know, when she crashes his piano gig in the, in Prague, or maybe she doesn't show up, but the, the camera, you know, finds him in Prague performing. Um, there's that really high-angle shot of the dance floor completely empty, and it slowly fills with people from all sides. It looks like, almost like bacteria under a... Uh, microscope like it's just like such an odd way of like showing a dance floor filling i'm trying to think of some other stuff the necktie around the tree when they're in bed you know when they when they have their one night stand they're posed in this sort of like rapid fire montage of different arrangements in bed and you see not a lot of their flesh but like it's it's kind of an evocative like just arrangement of their bodies in like uh, different um, configurations. Mm-hmm. There's a Varda film that does that a little later in the '60s. Um, 
I'm not gonna remember the title off the top of my head. It's, it's the one that translates to the happiness. Oh yeah, Blonde Hill. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, in that one. Yeah, when they have sex. you're right. It does yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. And that that's the connections I was seeing more. Just was the visual style. Just if it was not influenced by the French New Wave, it just felt very simpatico with their you know aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And that was what really stuck out to me. It was like I had not seen that low budget, high style filmmaking, youth culture stuff in this specific cultural context before. Are we to read from the film that Piano Boy was like negging her when he calls her oh, angular? Definitely. Okay, because Oh yeah. I mean he compared uh, Picasso <laughs> he, he literally compares her to a work of art, right? So like there's there's something there. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, he does say, Oh you're angular like a Picasso guitar and then it's immediately transposed with this image of her like extremely feminine guitar like hips as he like lays on her. But I guess I didn't read that in the film while watching it. That's something that I'm only like getting confirmation of from y'all. He's a big city fuckboy who thinks he could just play yeah, with the lives much. of the rural girls. Like I mean, he lies and says, "Oh yeah, my parents are divorced." Clearly. They oh, are not. right. The only like genuine moment they share is when they both call each other out for having rings from each other's, like from past lovers. And they're like, oh, yeah, my mom gave me this. And they both know each other are lying. <laughs> and they kind of have a joke about it. Um, that's like the only like genuine moment they have that entire exchange. I guess. And maybe this is me being like a shallow Westerner. I'll I'll cop to that. But. To me, the fact that everyone just looks normal in this movie, like before I was saying, like, I literally could not tell a difference between what we were supposed to see as like the table of appealing women and the table of unappealing women. Like they all, they all just look like women of equivalent attractiveness to me. There's not like a movie star in here, like which we were talking about, you know, you were mentioning Allie, like everyone who was in this was mostly an amateur. I think the piano boy had previously been in Black Peter, the director's like first film, but like mostly amateurs, mostly, you know, not people who were hired for their beauty, but were hired mostly for their naturalness and mostly for their availability because they lived in town. And a lot of real factory workers, yeah. And um, the lead girl, like, she lived with the factory workers just to, like, get a feel and a vibe of, like, how they would talk and what they were like. So, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of realism without being realism. Yeah. Like, it's realistic, not realism. But as a result of that, for me as a viewer, I didn't gather that piano boy was like a big city fuck boy he just looks like everybody else in town (laughs) like you know he's cute sure she's cute too you know he's got a skinny little body and not much butt as we see whenever he's like trying to put that like shade back up you know and it's not like he's suave and sophisticated as indicated by his inability to put that shade back up right so within the context of the narrative and again, this could be my failure and my like, um, there could just be like something that's not, that is completely being lost in translation between this film and my brain that I didn't think, oh, he's this big city fuck boy who's come and he's made her promises that he can't keep. I was just like, sure, 
he doesn't have a lady back in Prague until like you point out, he did say that his parents were split up and that's clearly not the case. I don't know. Uh, maybe there's just something wrong with my brain. Like maybe, maybe this is like my COVID brain or maybe it's just my like corrupted by like very simple narratives. I like to think that I'm, you know, a bit more perceptive than the average viewer who, you know, just goes to see insert, you know, low-hanging fruit franchise. The Suicide here. Squad? <laughs> the Suicide right, Squad. But like, I, I guess uh, maybe I needed this film in particular to spoon feed to me because there's so much that you're pointing out that I personally did not perceive. And it's and looking back, it's like obvious. Or maybe I just shouldn't <laughs> watch movies on my lunch break. Maybe that's the lesson that we should be taking from this. <laughs> Maybe that's what I need to do. Sorry, Allie. I'm sorry. I'm ruining this viewing experience in this discussion by having to participate in capitalism. My bad. Well, okay. Like, not knowing that it was a comedy until way late, like, did you still appreciate it as, like, a, you know, artsy fartsy? Yeah. Romantic drama? I did. Like, I was like, okay. oh. Young oh, love. Yeah. It's so fleeting. My heart is breaking for her. Oh. I think there's two levels to watch it on. You know, I think there is the comedy level, but I also think there's just the drama level. You just got the drama level. It's okay. She does a lot of genuine romantic pining in this movie that like really is Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I will say I you know, one of my what I think is probably one of the five best television series ever made, one of my personal favorites is Six Feet Under. And I watched all five seasons of that and read it only as a drama. And then when I rewatched it a couple years later, I was like, oh, this is funny as hell. I had no idea. For like five seasons worth of it, I was wow. like, oh, this is a dark comedy. I've just been literally reading it as a drama for the entire first viewing. That's so funny. Were you watching it on your lunch break? No, I wasn't. Although, to be fair, I was like watching it like in secret because of, you know, yay. So I, I was like still living at home oh, and yeah. having to like watch it in the attic. Uh, so maybe that's part of it too. <laughs> oh, this is a very revelatory episode. The only way that could have been funny is if you were literally in a closet watching it. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is the drama dark comedy moment of oh your life. Oh my god, it is. <laughs> so much to learn. <laughs> I think it's fair to just see it as a drama as well. I think the humor is very subtle and it's always undercut. Like, it's very biting because you know on the one hand you're laughing, but you know you're about to see the consequences. There is a lot of the tragic like drama going on. The one exception might be that um, scene where he struggles with lowering the blinds so they can have sex in the darkness. Oh, yes. That is just pure physical comedy with like no undercutting to it. Uh, he's just laughing yeah. at his like, desperation to get the blinds to finally stay down so he can walk away from them. That was pure comedy as well as the scene in with the whole family in the bed arguing. That, I think, <laughs> if, I, if I had not like done a little reread before... Like resuming, I would have known that it was a comedy by the slapstick blind scene. But yeah, it was uh, really something. Uh, speaking sort of selfishly, anytime you want to do this, like just plucking something from like the Criterion channel as a, like a selection for the show, um, I am always down for that yeah. because I don't feel like I use that service as much as I should. 
and there's you know obviously yeah. tons of great movies on there. Like I said, like this expanded my understanding of what the Czech New Wave is in a very specific way. Like I didn't realize this was more of the norm than Daisies, which I should have because there are like so few other films in the world like Daisies. Like of course there isn't this whole wealth uh, of yeah. like similar stuff out there. I probably would have found uh, it by now, you know. Unfortunately, because Daisies is such a fantastic movie. I love that movie so much. This is like the most normal and then, you know, in a way I think Valerie and her Week of Wonders is weirder than Daisies a little bit. And I just think that because like tonally, I don't know. I don't think it's as fun, I guess. It's definitely queasier. Yeah. That's a feel-bad nightmare movie. Right? That's exactly what it is. But I think they kind of range in between. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, like, beautiful Like, stuff I would say the average one's kind of, like, in the middle there. Some are more dark. Some are more humorous. Like, there's this really, really dark one I don't think I'm going to make any of you watch because I don't think I can see it again called The Cremator. So if, if y'all are into watching The Czech New Wave and want to see something that's straight up dark, dark, that I think tries to be a comedy but i just couldn't read it that way the cremator watch me watch it and just like laugh my face off (laughs) yeah yeah it's like oh this is the funniest movie i've ever seen i seriously doubt that that'll happen but if you do (laughs) i would i would love to hear your thoughts on it but yeah i really like the check new wave a lot um and i can't even really put a finger on why like you know the french new wave's great and that's me coming from a point of yeah, sure. I'm I'm just a big snob, but I'm just a big snob who dropped out of film school. So, of course, I think the French New Wave's great. But <laughs> uh, I really like the Czech New Wave. Um, I mean, I did spend a month in Prague, so, you know, a lot of it is, like, stuff that, you know, I spend time learning about or, like, I've seen the places and stuff. But it's also just so interesting to me because... Sure, there's some films in the French New Wave that are funny, but I mean, the tippity top is Agnes Varda, by far, and outside of that, it just feels, like you said, very, like, cool, like, youth culture, like, rebellion, but to me, I feel like the Czech New Wave is a lot, like, there's a lot of quirky comedy going on, you know, there's a lot of, like, we live under this oppressive regime, but we're Czech, so we're just going to make fun of it. Like, I feel like there's a lot of that going on, and I kind of love that. I kind of love that spirit of, like, youthful, like, rebellion that's just silly. There's also, like, more of a thrill of discovery there, too, where you feel like, you know, the French New Wave has been almost talked to death in any film lover circle you've ever been in, where, like, I, I feel like the Czech New Wave is still kind of an unknown to me. Like, I, I still need to, like, bone up on it. Gotta, gotta be film Pokemon. Gotta, gotta watch them all. <laughs> well, uh, next week on the show, we are going to keep things highbrow for another week. I feel like this is, like, a good salve after I made everyone watch reality TV movies uh, for the last episode of the show. Next week, we're talking about My Dinner with Andre. Oh. Yes. That one and a few other, like, one long conversation movies where it's just, like, a couple characters in a room. Usually these characters are writers, just sort of like talking each other's heads off um, for the entire runtime of the movie. So yeah, we're keeping it classy this this month. So unusual for Swamp Flicks. I know. I'm sure we'll dive right back into the trash bin as soon as we can. Well, the next time we all meet up and talk, we will be talking about something that is extremely trashy and hilarious. So 
but it thinks it's classy. The subjects of it do. Oh my god. From what I understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you should not learn anything more about <laughs> what we're going to watch and just go into it from here, but you will not be disappointed. I have watched this movie five times in the past three years. I love it so much. I've rented it five times and I should have just bought it because I cannot get it. Well, now you got to say the title. It is Queen of Versailles. Yes. Not a real queen, not a real Versailles. Which honestly, another like highbrow taste, uh, you know, essential cinema selection, I think. (laughs) I'm saying this as as a movie I have not seen before, but you know, it is directed by a fine art photographer uh, and has like, you know, a sterling reputation. Um, I have thoughts on that person's other work but i'll save them for that discussion well that's all the teasing we're doing for future episodes uh you can reach us swampflix at gmail.com if you want to recommend any episodes or movies you want us to review on the website uh we will read those recommendations on the show much like <laughs> the uh blanket recommendation for akira that came through this week shout out to akira maybe guy. the first and last time we'll get to do that thank you for <laughs> recommending akira to everyone looks great akira bye everybody bye keep it classy and sassy <laughs> both that's exhausting It's a